Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, welcome along good people, welcome along to episode 97 of the Howie Games, part A, 97, the ton, the ton is not far away, we are within a boundary, unless we get knocked over in the nervous 90s. Runs, 98, 99, will they go for the third? It's fallen, he's skipped on, oh tragedy, tragedy. Nightmare. Could happen. Could happen. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Please let me know at MarkHoward03 on social media who you would like guest number 100 to be. I've got a few ideas. I've got a few feelers out. But tell me, who would you like to see bring up the ton on the show at MarkHoward03? All righty. This week, one of my favourite footballers, Nat Five. Main, can he keep it alive? He does. The Fife, the combination, the twist, the shimmy, kept it alive. Might kick the goal. Duffield sends it back inside 55 oh. over the top with a beauty from four deep. Yeah, Nat is a star, a two-time Brownlow medalist. He's the captain of the Fremantle Football Club. Great player to watch, great player to commentate. But more than that, I reckon I enjoy all the other sides of Nat that you don't necessarily see on field. His love of surfing, he loves to get out there and travel to some weird and wonderful places, likes to drive big rigs out in the back blocks of WA, and he's also very invested in the world of business, which is all discussed in this episode, as well as how fanatical Nat is about preparation, what he's learned about leadership, and what he's been forced to overcome on his football journey. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Above all that though, I wanted to get Nat on the pod as he has always struck me as an adventurous soul in a world where, from where I sit, adventurous spirits don't necessarily get as much love as I reckon they should. So here's to all of you out there that are filled with the spirit of adventure. Enjoy the captain of the Fremantle Football Club, Nat Five. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Well, welcome to the Howie Games A two-time Brownlow medalist, AFL star, surfer, traveller A man of many talents, Nat Fife Nat, welcome to the show I'm absolutely pumped to have you on, how are you? I'm well, Howie, thank you very much for having me I really appreciate you coming on the show. I sent you an email and the first thing you said to me was, oh, I don't typically go on podcasts, um, but along something along the lines with a smiley emoji, but I'll make an exception. So I thank you for that. Why? Why'd you say yes? Uh, I mean, firstly, on the no podcast rules, I've, I feel like I've been burnt a couple of times. Um, I tend to get quite deep and revealing when I have one-on-one conversations and totally forget there's an audience that's going to be tuning in at some point. Mm. And generally that turns into headlines, which I then have to defend. Um, so that that uh, is why I'm always a little bit nervous about podcasts. But, I mean, you and I have struck up a, v- a relationship over surfing, gave mm. me some great mail on Costa Rica a few <laughs> years ago. 
and since then um, have been back and forth a few times. I have listened to a couple of episodes of the show and um, I think if there was ever a platform to jump on and tell a story, it would be this one. And the other thing just to add is, I mean, podcasts generally one-on-one, are, you're talking about yourself for 30 or 45 minutes, which um, might shock some people, but it's not the thing I enjoy doing. So how, how, how do you go? It's a really good question. How do you go living in the life you do, being even meeting you in person? Very engaging, but I presume you're more introvert than extrovert. Yep, that's accurate. I, um, I, I'm quite comfortable in my own space. Um, I like to, my personality type would indicate that I like to achieve things. That's how I get um, sort of a sense of self-worth and so I generally go about identifying what tasks I want to do in my life and progressively trying to achieve them. So of all the, you know, we all wear different hats and mm-hmm. all the hats you wear in your life, you're a, you're a footballer, you're a leader because you're a captain, you're very savvy in a corporate sense, yeah, as you said, you're a truck driver, you're a surfer, you're a traveller. Of all those different parts that make up your personality, which is the one that you're most comfortable being? Uh, I don't think I don't think I have one in particular. I mean, the truck driver, Lake Grace, country kid is is my upbringing, um, but my whole adult life I've spent as a footballer, um, and so they're the two that I spend the most time in and around. Um, but I am most comfortable when I'm with a small group of people who I trust um, and really not having to um, explain too much about what, I do, what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. That's, that's really my, my comfortable space, but I really love the energy you get from moving from and putting all those different hats on, the fact that I can play footy and I can um, drive a truck and I can go to uni and I can mix in a business circle and... I love the fact that you can move between all those different areas and challenge yourself. You mentioned Lake Grace a couple of times. Tell me about your mum and dad. And for those that are listening going, where on earth Lake Grace? I must admit I actually had to Google uh, the map to find out how far inland it was. Tell me about your upbringing with your mum and dad in Lake Grace. Yeah, it's uh, 350 kilometres east-southeast of Perth. It's a wheat and sheep farming community, about 400 people population in the town. Um, and the district with all the farmers and a few other little towns has about 1,500 people in it. Um, my parents run a transport business, Fife Transport, and they've been running that for 35-odd years, and that was really my upbringing from as early as I can remember, um, going to work with Dad in the truck um, and playing footy for the local community. They were the two pathways which I spent most of my time around and really shaped and moulded the sort of person I've become. Um, Dad's similar to me in many ways, task-focused, quite hard-working, um, shies away from the spotlight. Mum, even more so, very introverted, connected with country, connected with animals, um, very private people. And, um, and I'm quite grateful for the upbringing I've had, Howie. How do they go when you're splashed across the national newspapers and TV? How do your <laughs> mum and dad deal with it from a small country town? I'm sure they defend you to the hilt, Nate. <laughs> they, um, they have interesting responses. They, uh, Dad's constantly saying, keep your head down, get out of the media, get out of the news, stop talking. <laughs> um, mum, 
from early on started taking to replying to fan mail um, and we had a couple of young girls early on rep- saying that I was their hero and whatnot and she took it upon herself to send a letter back to them explaining how I shouldn't be their hero, their hero should be nurses and <laughs> firefighters and doctors and those sorts of people. So um, the footy world, the, the, the flashy lifestyle, the... Um, the media, that's not their scene at all. And mum comes to a few games. Dad tries to get to most games, but he, he'll be more interested in talking to the, the doorman on the corporate room than actually <laughs> mingling with um, any of the senior staff. So how old were you, Nat, when you were first driving a truck? Like were you sitting on your dad's knee driving a truck at age three? You know, when, when did you take the wheel? Very young, Howie. We used to, my brother and I used to sit um, behind the gear stick and, change the gears for dad with two hands and learn the pattern of the of the road ranger gearbox and then as soon as we were um able to sit on dad's lap and steer with the big steering wheel we would do that and progressively we'd put all the pieces of the puzzles together and by the time we were about eight or nine we could um, fully idle the truck around and try and change a few gears my brother's a year and a half older than me so he was the trailblazer and i was constantly trying to keep up with him um and by the time we were 14 and 15 any back roads or gravel roads or private property, um, it was, we couldn't get in the set quick enough to drive. Talk to me about trucks. I have no mechanical knowledge. We're talking big trucks here when we're talking WA. How, how many wheels on these big beasts? Oh, um, they're what we would call road trains over here, um, two and three trailer combinations, carting somewhere north of 50, 60 tonne, up to 100 tonnes sometimes. Um, we cut agricultural products to and from the city uh, to the local farms. Most round trips are somewhere between 600 and 1,000 kilometres, so any day's work generally ranges somewhere from 10 to 16 hours. Um, and truck driving in many ways has honed the sort of person I am. It's, it's quite individual. You're the master of your own destiny. There's a task to be achieved and it only gets finished when you finish it. Um, hours on end of solitude and left alone with your own thoughts. And I find it um, a, a great industry to be in. Everyone waves to each other on the road. There's a, a truckie's language on the two-way that the car drivers don't actually get to hear or see. So it's quite a it's quite a nice family to be a part of. So it's a sort of Roger, Roger, breaker, breaker stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? It's, it's, no, it's not like that at all. It's... Um, <laughs> It's <laughs> there is a bit of a bit of bait that gets thrown around on the CVs from time to time, but that's um, no, good fun. Do you wear a blue singlet or not? <laughs> this is one of the big arguments I have with Dad because I come back and I wear a hoodie and jeans and generally socks and sandals, um, and he tries to get me to wear a high vis work shirt, which is industry standard and steel cap boots, and I'm not having a bar of that. <laughs> it's something. For some people, it's quite a romantic notion to be off on your own, isolated, like you said, doing a job, seeing places, travelling to new places, no responsibilities apart from your actual job you're doing. Do you find it quite a free type of existence? Yeah, absolutely. I find it... um I find so many similarities with what I do as a football player. You know, there's long patches of repetition and monotony and unless you get control of your own mind, you can go crazy. Um, but then there's these blissful moments at the end once you've completed the job where um, you get a rush of emotion, of, of achievement, of fulfilment, um, and then you go back and start over again. It's similar to footy in, 
many ways where most of what we do is behind closed doors. It's boringly repetitive over and over again and trying to get your body and mind ready. And then every now and then you get this little patch of glory where you get to play in front of a big crowd um, or get to win something. So I find the two industries quite similar. And when you jump out of the truck and it's, uh, I don't know if they're typically constant clients or you're rolling up somewhere for the first time and WA is a footy mad state, Nat 5 jumps out of the truck to deliver whatever you're delivering. Do you get strange looks and do you get blokes starting to want to talk footy with you and girls? (laughs) Yeah. um, Generally, that's why I wear the hoodie and (laughs) most of the places Dad sends me now, thankfully, are um, you load yourself and you can unload when no one's there so I don't have to see anyone. Um, I really do enjoy sneaking through a town and uh, I'll spot someone walking down the street and, this, and on the side of the door of the truck it's got five in huge letters and I'll look at someone, they'll look at me and look at the name directly under me, make the connection and you see a smile go across <laughs> their face. And, oh, that's a really nice moment. But for the most part I just try and keep undercover. And you talked about uh, being under the, is it called the bonnet of a truck? Yeah, the in the cab, yeah. Okay, in the cab. If something goes wrong, Nat, and you have to start pulling out spanners. Can you do that type of stuff or not? Oh, I can do elementary level mechanic work, Howie. Okay. Um, I've, yeah, been known to ring my brother and go, what does this mean? What's happening here? <laughs> Why is this happening? <laughs> and, and him just remind me that um, I'm not in the big smoke anymore and actually do some real work. So I can do enough to get me through. <laughs> All right. So footy, we talked about trucking and footy, your, your constants when you're growing up. What footy team did you first play for and how old were you? I played for the Lake Grace Pingra um, Bombers. I was in year four, so however old that is, mm-hmm. and uh, I played for that team until I was in year seven, so 11 years old. And what was it about footy that grabbed you? Well, it was the only thing you could do out there, Howie. I don't think there was any other sports. <laughs> right, <laughs> I, was, I was hoping for some big emotional answer about there was instant connection and there was nothing else to do, mate. Honestly, we had no other sporting options in the winter uh, and we used to scrape together as many boys and girls as we could to fill a side and the job was on. We always had reasonably successful teams. We had the, the Bairstows and the Mortons and the Slarks and some family names that really held the <laughs> town together and passed down all this information. Um, and so I started in a team that was pretty strong and sort of worked my way from there. Did you have to travel vast distances to play? Yeah, so we had seven teams in our competition, the Ongrup competition. The closest team's 50Ks and the furthest team was just over 200. Um, And that was always a fun day out because, I mean, I could wake up at sort of 6.30 and you're excited as a kid to play footy and you don't have to sit around and wait until 1 o'clock. You can actually get on the road and start (laughs) travelling to footy. So travelling four hours uh, over east at the moment, that's, that's sort of normal for me. Was it cricket in the summer or you weren't a cricketer? Wasn't a cricketer. Tennis was my Tennis. secondary sport, but a um, um, disgustingly competitive and poor temper mixed together didn't make me a great exponent of the game. Were you a thrower of rackets, Nathan? <laughs> I was a thrower and a, and a smasher on the ground. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and my mum would take great pleasure in supporting me until the point where that racket left my hand and then would start actively supporting the person on the other side of the net. And were you a Eagles or a Dockers man or no? I was Richmond. Richmond? Uh, yeah, and don't ask me why. I, I 
just started following them and following Richo and the colours and then everything Tigers from there. So at what stage did you or those around you start to realise that you were better than the average footballer? Were you, like, at the start, were you, wow, look at this kid, five, or not so much? Um, so the year five, six and seven, I was in the, always in the top couple recognised by the, uh, the awards at the end of the season and I won the association award at the end of year seven um, and I thought, okay, that's, that's a pretty cool little sample size of people to be sitting on top of that pack. Um, and then I went to high school um, in Perth, started playing with a lot more kids and was reasonably competitive then. So that at that age, year eight, year nine, I, I thought there was a, like I'd always dreamed of playing AFL, but now I started to see a realistic pathway of how I could possibly get there. How sheltered were you? Was trips to Perth part of the norm before going down to school or was it a, a really big step? That was a big step, mate. We used to um, have a competition when we'd go down on a Friday night who could see the city lights first. <laughs> was like the exciting thing for our family to do. Um, and so we used to stay at my auntie's place, which is 45 minutes from the coast. So going to Perth didn't mean going to the beach. Um, the beach trip was a three-hour trip to the south of Lake Grace, which happened once a year as well. So reasonably sheltered and a lot of things didn't make sense. So why didn't people eat Hungry Jacks for dinner every night if it was if you lived next to Hungry Jacks? Like that, I couldn't compute that as a kid when we used to get it once a year. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So, so you go down to the big smoke, you start progressing through school. Um, you mentioned at the start studying, uh, I was reading, you've got, have you got a master's in business admin? Doing my MBA at the moment, okay. most of the way through that. How's that going? Going well, uh, really enjoying going into campus, throwing a curveball with the whole yep. um, situation we're dealing with at the moment, but quite enjoying it. What's the hardest part? What's the hardest part of that particular, or an MBA? What, what's the subject that gets you? Uh, it's sort of a little sample size of all the different subjects, so accounting, economics, finance, managerial, um, data-driven decision. I really enjoy doing 12 weeks of each unit and getting a snapshot. The hardest part, how it would be middle of winter, travelling to play every second week, big workloads, mentally and physically exhausted, and then still going into campus three hours a week plus eight to ten hours of pre-read workload through the week. So there is some real grind in the midsection of your trimester where you just have to get through the content. So why are you doing it? I am interested in business. I'm interested in getting um, the formal qualifications, but also it's a new space where I can remove myself from footy, go into campus with um, people that are mostly older than me, have had jobs in industry before, and I can be... tiny little fish in that pond trying to learn a heap of new things as opposed to sometimes in the AFL world um, you spend your life in and around it and um, it's just nice to change the space. You can say it, Nath. You can say you're a big fish in the AFL world. I know you got halfway <laughs> down that statement and you tried to back out of it pretty quickly. I'll, I'll say it for you. No, you, you extracted yourself from that nicely. So b- before becoming a footy player, Obviously, you're an intelligent man and you've got the ability and the want to study. Was there a career path away from footy that you were considering? I wanted to be an astronaut. Okay. And I thought the moon seemed like a fair travel destination to tick off. Yep. Um, But that seemed a little bit far-fetched from Lake Grace. So I switched to more that engineer, 
I love metalwork. I love fabricating. Um, I just thought engineer was probably a good pathway. All of these things are a distant second to my goal of, yep. of being an AFL player. That was just going to happen. Um, but I did choose a pathway through my high schooling years to set me up for engineering. Just as an aside, I just listened to a six-part podcast about Apollo 13 for a man that wanted to be an astronaut. Search it. Next time you're rolling in the big rig, um, it's all about engineering. And, you know, you've probably seen the movie with Tom Hanks. It's a bit more technical than that. Outstanding podcast. That might be as close to the moon as you get, I reckon, mate. (laughs) Plenty more of that to come in a moment. Next up on the show, oh, a man that has had quite the footballing journey as a player and coach, Muskie Kevin Musket. Kevin is currently coaching in Belgium, where it would be fair to say his approach is slightly different to the way he was taught the game in his early years in the UK. On the you know the Friday or something, we were doing the tactical session, and he's got me playing at left wing back, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, the fuck? You know, I've never really played at this. Anyway, I thought, mate, I'm just going to take the opportunity. It couldn't have got off to a worse start for me. How we were away to Birmingham. I remember this. We were away to Birmingham, uh, and in the first half, I get the ball. Uh, don't really see any options going forward, so I play a square pass and, you know, uh, gets cut out, they score, we're losing 1-0. And, uh, oh, no. yeah, we come in at half-time and I think, shit, you know, I've just known these blokes five or six days and they're thinking, Who, you know, who's this Aussie? He's, he's going to... So, and I, I remember this vividly because it, it held me in good stead for the, my period of time. It was defining as well because at half-time... You know, we're waiting for the manager manager to come in, and uh, you know, I've just put my hand up and says, "Like, oh, sorry, boys, mate. I, uh, you know, that pass. Sorry, sorry. You know, cost us a goal." Uh, and I can remember, like, no one was really looking at me when I said it. But then when I actually said sorry, you know, by the end of it, you know, they all stopped what they were doing and tied a lace and looked up at me, and I thought to myself, "Well." Oh, I reckon I've said something wrong here because I just gauged that feeling. Anyway, the manager comes in. Second half, we go back out. Uh, I go down, a, uh, go down a, uh, the wing, cross the ball. We score. We drew. We drew one one. So I've, I've redeemed myself slightly. And then on the coach on the way home, and back then it was you know everyone's having, everyone's drinking beers because you know that was the era you know in the coach and everyone's drinking beers. And nice. I remember. Yeah, I remember sitting next to one of the, the English boys and I was going, mate, what happened at half-time, you know? What, I, I, I just felt a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and this was a lesson, a huge lesson, and, and character-defining for me as well because... Uh, and I said, why was everyone... What was the reaction so... You know, and they go, mate, you never take any responsibility here, mate. You always blame somebody else. <laughs> and I go, oh, shit. I said, uh, that's, that's why everyone was so stunned, you know? And I thought, right. well... Yeah, because, mate, it's so cut... Then it, what it taught me was how cutthroat it is that, mate, no-one will take ownership or responsibility. That's Kevin Musket. Muskie, next week on the show. All righty, let's get back to Nat. So you you get drafted to the Fremantle Footy Club. Um, I will have written it down here somewhere. 2009, 20th draft pick. Uh, you walk in the doors for the first time. What do you think? Uh, well, firstly, I parked outside of the club because I drove into the car park and all the car parks were numbered and so I assumed that was the player numbers yep. and I didn't have a number yet so I didn't want to park in anyone's spot so I ended up parking in a public car park about a kilometre <laughs> away and walking into the club. <laughs> um, and then from there I, I just sort of got to work asking as many questions as I, as I could. Um, I remember asking early days of Luke McFarlane, whether he played on the MCG. And I think back now, what a ridiculous question to ask 
a 200 game player. <laughs> but I was coming from <laughs> such a long way back, mate. I just, I was just keen to ask all these questions, and some of the things that came out of my ma- mouth were ridiculous in hindsight. So what? What was the main thing that hit you between the eyes transitioning from school to elite level sport? And I'm sure there were so many of them that hit you like a truck. Um, the first one was probably how much I'd, I'd built it up to be this unattainable, unachievable next level <laughs> of, of performance. And pretty quickly I started working out these guys were just uh, very experienced at their craft, but they weren't doing anything astronomically different to what state-level football players are doing and then back a notch to high school-level footballers. So that was the first bit of exciting information for me to process and go, okay, like I I might be capable of playing a game here or even stringing together a couple. And with that, I got this new burst of motivation to just keep diving in and seeing what else I could learn. Um, that, was probably the, that was probably the biggest thing that hit me early on. We'll talk about the weight you put on, um, but this question comes from a skinny man that's got a real weak bench press out the back in isolation times and open the bar and not too much. How, how did you go wandering into the gym the first time when all those big boys are in there and little skinny Nathan Fife wanders in? <laughs> it was, uh, as I, I can imagine you feel when you walk into a gym yourself, how it's quite intimidating. <laughs> the only difference is... I'm mid-40s and you were 17. You've changed. I haven't. <laughs> this is true. Um, but thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> no, no worries. I was 69, 70 kilos at the time and uh, I remember our first day we did profiling, testing, and the first thing we had to do was um, like max chin-ups, yep. body weight chin-ups. Yep. <clears throat> now, it was in the afternoon and for lunch, as someone who didn't really understand high-performance diet, I'd help myself to a doner kebab <laughs> and a can of Coke because <laughs> I'd been working as a welder for the previous year, so that was sort of standard lunch, you know. Um, and so I've gone to do this this um, max chin-up test and I think I registered two and then on pull-ups I've registered four or five and I've got Anthony Morabito who was drafted pick number four, a man mountain, who's just crunching them out at will and having a chat whilst he's doing them. Uh, and in that moment, I genuinely thought, well, there goes there goes your chance of playing footy ever. Um, these people know you're a fraud now. So it was extremely intimidating those first couple of weeks. Your first game of footy against, oh, it was against the Tigers, wasn't it, of, of it all was, things? Yep. Um, so what's your memories of that, the big time? <laughs> yeah. Um, was that Subiaco Oval? Anzac Day, got to stand there and um, do the last post lining up, looking around at the crowd, just um, goosebumps on my arms. And thought, this is incredible. This is absolutely amazing. This is everything I thought it was going to be. We started, got pumped the first quarter uh, and then eased my way our, our way back into the game and I started to get a few touches, ended up kicking 1-4 and getting a few clunks. Harlow drives the ball long, the, the back. ball at the back. Oh, he's got the top and a sensational make taken by the young man, Fife. Boy, has he got a set of hands. They just keep producing him at the minute, Fremantle. He looks very accomplished in the aerial department, Jared. The second clunker he's taken. Yes, he's been very impressive, BT. He'll go back and slot this one through. And I think there was a fair uh, 
question mark as to whether or not he was ready. I know he was dominating at the lower grade at uh, Claremont, but it was in a dominant side, but he is a smartish player. Fremantle to go up by 11 points and five kicks the goal. Mum and Dad got treated to the President's Suite and all that, and the whole experience for our family was everything we wanted it to be, and um, and we'd won the game, got to sing the song Powerade in the Eyes, so it was quite a special moment. I remembered you being skinny, but I actually had a look at some highlights today, which is why I knew it was against Richmond, and nice hanger too, deep forward, and you kick your Thank first you. goal. Yep. Let, let's talk about physical performance, Nat. So you went, you, what were you, 69 kilos? Yep, about that. Is it probably just not paying him the respect? Because have you had a look at the size of him? There's not much of him. So you put on, what, 20 kilo? What do you play at now? 92. 92. So yeah, about 22. So how long did it take you to pull on that weight? Uh, over the first two years, I worked my way to 80 kilos. Um, and then in 2010, 11, and in 2012, so about three years, I'd worked myself to 80, 83 kilos. I had a um, shoulder injury early in the season and I was out for 12 weeks. And that gave me a window in season just to get as big as I could. And by about my fourth year after that 2012 injury, I was. I was up to my 90 kilo, 91 kilo playing. How much did you have to eat? Was it a constant grind? It was an, it was enormous. Yeah, I would um, cereal was my uh, secret weapon, yep. uh, which I enjoyed cereal anyway. But always a box of wheat bix or just rights in the house, and it just became how many times a day could you eat? Um, if there was three standard meals, you would try and wedge in one before and after every one of those meals, and um, if you were ever hungry. You'd failed, basically. It was huh. try and keep yourself not hungry and do the work and then eat. How many wheat bicks, you know, the famous Trevor Hendy or Brett Lee or Tim Kale ads, how many wheat bicks were you going through? Uh, I would I would count it on bowls, Howie. So the bowls generally could only handle five or six comfortably, otherwise yep. your milk starts carrying on when you pour that in. Yep. Um, so try and churn your way through two or three bowls worth. So yeah, around your 15. Crunchy or do you prefer them soggy? Oh, uh, this is going to be controversial, but I pour the milk in, put them in the microwave for a minute and heat the whole show up. Super and, soggy. Uh, yeah, and then it just goes down really quick. Yeah, I like the soggy. So th- that's how you put on weight. I was talking to uh, your former coach, Ross Lyon, yesterday, and I said, tell me about, tell me something about Nat and why he's so good. And uh, it won't embarrass you. I'm just going to tell you what he said. He talked about... Uh, a pre-season, I think that's when you went on to win your first Brownlow. And there was, he was saying to me, 10, 12 Ks of work in the morning. And then there was a required weight session in the afternoon. And the majority of the boys would go out and have coffee and have lunch. And you would go home and sleep and then come back and do your weights in the afternoon. And he was using that as an example of how dedicated you are to your training. True story, firstly, or is he winding me up? No, it's a true story. So talk to me about dedication to your craft. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always been really ambitious and fine fulfilment through achieving things. I've mentioned that earlier. But mm. I've had a couple of people along my journey who have aligned me and pointed me in a direction that I might not have otherwise stumbled upon myself. And one of them is Jason Weber, our strength and conditioning coach, who's been with Fremantle my entire career. And he basically grabbed me and said, um, the way you train and the way you prepare in the gym is good, but if you want to be the best 
way you can possibly be, it needs to be better than anyone else is doing it. So I started working extremely closely with him and he was using his experience with the Wallabies with um, with names like Gregan and Pocock and Sharp, guys that were immaculate preparers in their own rights. And he was using that as encouragement for me to say, if you train like these guys, you can achieve similar levels to what they did. And so the story Ross refers to is um, I started napping every day and it's something that I still do today. I would train in the morning, go home, have a big lunch, sleep and come back in the afternoon and do my weights when the gym was empty. And generally when I'd go home from my nap, I'd see the crew at the cafe having a coffee, playing cards, and I'd come back from my nap and I'd see the crew still at the cafe having the coffee. I'd do my weights and then I'd go home and I'd still see the crew there sitting there having having the coffee. And that's not a dig at them. That was That's probably why they've all got lots of mates and I don't. <laughs> but, um, but that was my mindset around performance was I'm just going to maximise every waking minute of the day and focus it all towards getting where I need to go, which is being a lot stronger and physically fit to be able to handle an inside midfielder role. So how do you feel about sacrifice? Is it, uh, for a man that's not just an athlete, if you know what I mean, how, how do you go with the nonstop sacrifice? Is it all worth it? Because there's so many other things you could be doing. Yeah, I mean, that was something I I had to juggle mentally early on in my career. And I've mentioned that in a previous podcast, which has got me into trouble about... Um, about going down the rabbit hole of why, why am I doing this? All we're really doing is playing footy. That's not really helping humanity evolve in any way. Um, I had these ambitions of being a an astronaut because I always thought and think there's something bigger than this world we're living in and keen to explore and get out there and trailblaze in some way. Um, and so I, I would run into these dead ends when I was considering whether what we're doing was actually all worth it. And as I matured through that stage, I started to understand that footy is my vehicle to be able to inspire other people um, to live a meaningful, purposeful life. And mm. for me, as someone who's task-focused, um, achievement-focused, a perfectionist in many ways, I can find real comfort direction in my life by progressively working towards goals. So... Um, Preparation for me um, is the way that I can really unlock uh, those feelings of fulfilment around achievement because in performance, very rarely do you get perfection. It's You can always do slightly better. You could have always done something slightly different to perform at a better, um, to a better level. And the only, the only side to that is, say, winning a Brownlow or winning a premiership because those two things are finite. Every other performance you're involved with, you could have always done better. So... For me, my preparation, I can do that as well as possible and I get real comfort in that. So if you've won by 10 goals, kicked three and had 35 possessions and regarded generally in the paper the next day as being the best player on the ground, is that enough? Or do you walk away from from what you're saying, that game, and think, what else could I have done? (laughs) Uh, This is a hard question to answer, but... um... Driving out of the stadium, the 45-minute drive home to Fremantle, I'll be driving along and then something will pop into my head about something I did wrong or something I missed and I'll script the steering wheel or, hmm. um, or, or lash myself in some way. And as much as I tell myself to pull back and understand the context of what you're doing and the fact you had a great team result, you played well, you tried your hardest, I can't control those emotions that bubble up to the surface 
and reveal themselves. And it's only really for the first couple of hours after a win, day or so after a bad loss or bad performance. And then after that, um, I've processed and packaged them and moved on. Um, No matter how tuned my awareness is or how much work I do on controlling those emotions, there's still this process where those things that you could have done better seem to rise to the surface in me. And um, and I can deal with them, no worries, if I've done everything I can to, purport, to prepare for the game. I think that's a common refrain for, for a lot of people that achieve in whatever field of life, they're never quite happy. And it, it can sound like a burden for us mere mortals, but then I look at it and think, well, that's probably why they're so good in the first place, because they're never quite, not happy is the right word, but never quite fulfilled with their performance. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, like I'm, I love what I do and I've really enjoyed the journey and continue to try and live as much as I can in the now and, and embrace every part of it. And I've, I've watched athletes gone by in interviews where they've said, I wish I had have stopped and smelt the roses or enjoyed that journey. So yep. I'm not making those mistakes, um, but I just have become really aware of what I can live with and what emotions I'm going to have to deal with after any performance, good or bad. So we're talking about physical performance. Now, where do you take yourself when physically it becomes really difficult, whether it's a weight session, a running session, deep in time on in the third or fourth quarter of a game, such a mental thing, sport, where where do you take yourself to achieve physically? Yeah, I mean, so for the first part of that question around in your preparation phase, I I call on my what I call motivational reserves, which I'm constantly filling back up. And I do that through travel. I do that through... um, meeting people and sharing experience. Um, I do that through the close people around me and how much my journey affects them uh, and also personal ambition. So those things all mixed in together create my motivational reserves. And if I have to reach for it during a weight session or a training session isolated somewhere, um, I generally can unlock some of those reserves quite easily. I use music to do that. Sometimes I'll use YouTube videos or um, little things that remind me of different motivational fuels. Inside a game, um, I find that a little bit easier in that it's just a competitive nature, which I'm um, fortunate to be be born with in many ways and that I I get real motivation from feeling like people are relying on me to perform. And when the chips are down, when everything's against you, that's when I find myself really – wanting to sort of dig in and do absolutely everything I can. We sort of discussed prior to doing this that this is not about headlines or specific games of football. It's more a journey. There's only really, (laughs) you shake your head at this, there's only really one game of footy I want to ask you about apart from your first one is the grand final you played in 2013. Now, I wish I could say to you what was it like winning that first premiership, Nat, and hopefully I can do that at some stage, but what's it like walking off after having your dream shattered? Dawson deprives him. They've done it. The best team all year. Last year so difficult for them. So before a crowd of 100,007 today at the MCG. Fourth on 11-11-77 and defeated Fremantle 8-14-62. Yeah, it's as much as the week and and the month of the finals and the parade and all the build-up is the most incredible experience of an athlete's career, an AFL athlete's career, that feeling of failure after is uh, is something I'll never forget and something it will be very hard to replicate in anything else I do, I think. I was so hollow and empty um, and 
and just wanted to be anywhere else but where I was at the time. And I just kept thinking, how can I feel 10 times worse having lost a grand final than in the previous years when we got bundled out of the finals? We didn't even play in the finals the year before that and I didn't feel as bad as what I feel now. That doesn't seem to compute. Um, How can you get so close and be left so devastated? It isn't worth it. And it obviously is worth it or you wouldn't still be doing it. So what came next in the thought process? Yeah, it's, oh, it's madness. It, if you look at the business model of what we're doing, um, one team wins and everyone else fails. And regardless of how much effort you put in <laughs> and a lot of those factors you aren't even in control of yourself. So as a business model, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but the journey is always worth it. And uh, looking back on that 13, 13 grand final now, eventually those memories turn into fond ones and I've I've got some really fond memories of that whole experience and um, and I'm a big believer in trusting the process and what is as is and so I understand that that's part of my journey. I had a really bad day in front of goal kicking. Up to that point I'd kicked 11 goals, one on set shots and that day I kicked um, zero goals, one and two out in the full. This is a difficult kick. His first kick was awful. He'd only missed one set shot this year before today. And he's, well, he's got more than the yips. Like it. Could my kicking boots have been on any other day of the of the, of the the year and not that day? Um, but I, I don't have any bitterness. I don't hang on to any resentment from that. And pretty quickly I moved through that experience and thought, yes, it's always worth it. And, yes, it's always only about the journey and what you're putting into it. It's never, it's never about sort of the destination or that achievement and that was sort of brought home to me even further having won one Brownlow and then um, and then the second one even more so. It's always about the journey. I declare the winner of the 2015 Brownlow medal, Nat Five for the Fremantle Football Club. So what does it mean to you to be a two-time Brownlow medalist, a, 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 an individual star in a team game? What does it mean to you? Fremantle... In five, three votes. We've got a winner of the 2019 Brownlow medal. Nat, you can't be caught. You become the 15th player to be a multiple Brownlow medalist. We'll speak soon. Well done. Congratulations. Uh, it's, that's a difficult thing to wrestle and I think made even more difficult in this Australian climate where we, um, we're, we're constantly encouraging people to try um, achieve as much as they can without trying, basically. That's sort of <laughs> the way that we encourage people to go about it. And so being someone that's really ambitious and going after individual success isn't really celebrated all that much. Um, but for me, it's recognition of, of a lot of hard work, uh, being really adaptable, learning the process and stringing together a full season um, under sort of different adversities that get thrown at at a player. And probably the, the second one, um, given some of the injuries I had to battle and having the added weight of the captaincy in a team that wasn't performing that well, um, it probably had some other meaning to it as well. That's the end of Nat Fife Part A. See you for Part B. Listener.